Hello everyone, my name is Duncan and welcome to my Unorthodoxy podcast and to the second episode in our series on providence. Already we've looked at the first sign of providence which is found sacramentally in the goodness of being, the sheer gift of existence which shares in the ultimate good that is God. In articulating this goodness, or rather struggling to articulate this goodness, I wanted to begin to hint at the sheer surplus of the good within creation. We are not, any of us, dealing with the mere reducibility of goodness to something we can find and name. It's nothing that is contractable to our mere conceptions of of what is there. It is something that precedes us, goes before us, with us, within us, and which exceeds us. Reality is always, in a sense, in excess of itself. What we feel to be amiss in the world or in ourselves is a sign of the deep desire that we have for life to be more than what it is. And we desire this like we desire anything that is good because there is a kind of reality in what we desire. We can only desire things that have being. We can only truly desire anything insofar as it has reality. Part of developing an awareness of this given goodness is for the sake of challenging a mindset of getting, of getting more, or getting when one thinks what one has gotten is somehow not enough. If our conception of justice is rooted, for example, merely in a sense of what has been taken away or what has not been given, we will inevitably end up perpetuating injustice. What we adopt as justice-seeking will only end up being revenge. In fact, I think a sense of the goodness of being affects all ethical and epistemological conceptions and categories. Goodness comes first and should retain ontological priority. But I want to get a little bit deeper than this. In the previous episode, we tried to imagine the beginning, a beginning before the very nature of beginnings, before time and space and materiality, before the human ability to perceive a beginning, a beginning that is perpetual rather than restricted to a moment in time long, long ago. The purpose of imagining the beginning is to get some sense of the ground of being, a sense, that is, of what is truly and ultimately real. This, I hope you recognize, is far from being a frivolous intellectual exercise. The issue is very much what we can actually find as real, rather than what is merely conceivably real. My claim is that if we do not perceive the link between goodness and being, we are not perceiving rightly. The act of imagining, then, is less about making something up than it is an act of arriving at a conception of what must be true in order to render our being and actions genuinely meaningful. The best kind of imagination is one that is capable of recognizing what is really there. What I perceive to be one of the major sources of a crisis of meaning in our time is the tendency, among other things, to split reality up and to get caught up in a pure fantasy. Mind is divorced from being, truth is separated from reality, goodness is torn away from the materiality of existence. This is found in all ideological idealizations, where people, for example, imagine that what is most important is human differences, 
rather than what is universally human. The starting point in many ideological squabbles, in other words, is with ontological violence and not ontological peace. Still, for the record, I'm sticking to questions around Christian doctrine at the moment rather than, say, questions of ideology. I'm also not here going to delve into natural theology and why, for instance, it is more logical for God to be the origin and goal of existence than to believe, like Carl Sagan, that the cosmos is all there ever was and ever will be. Christian theology presents us with an idea around God as origin and goal that may first seem unimaginable, namely the idea of the Trinity. And this, after this very lengthy introduction, is what I want to look at here. I know that not all of you will be able to follow me where I want to go in this episode. I realize that I have a broad listenership, which I'm very grateful for, that includes people who do not believe in God and those who do believe in God, but do not believe that God is a trinity. I'm immensely grateful for having such a range of listeners. This is so wonderful. Still, it seems that even many Christians I know have a very weak Trinitarian theology, partly because ours is a decidedly unmystical age, even if the longing for genuine mysticism remains. So whether you would want to follow me here or not, the claim of the doctrine of the Trinity is that the foundation and ground of reality is a God who is a threefold oneness, a God who is triune. A technical name for what I'm going to discuss here is Trinitarian ontology. To say that God is triune is to make an ontological claim, a claim that God's unified, self-expressive and self-prescribed unified diverse action will be discernible within the structures of perceptible reality itself because it is the ground of reality itself. If we want to understand the precise nature of the real of our entanglement in this messy material world, we need to extend our minds into a contemplation of this most ultimate of mysteries. To use a metaphor, we need to begin to see that creation is the afterimage of the created order and of our being created beings, and that the creator God is the afterimage of creation. We all need to look beyond the obvious to perceive the less than obvious. And maybe that should be obvious. This doesn't mean escaping our finite natures. In fact, if God has imprinted clues to his triune being into creation, we can know God better even by deepening our understanding of the finite world. And we can know the world we live in better by deepening our understanding of God's Trinitarian existence. We'll get to how this plays out concretely a bit later, but it will help to first present a basic outline of the doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously, this doctrine has been criticized by those outside of Christianity and parodied and warped and subjected to the worst excesses of reason and unreason by those both within and without Christianity. So my aim here is to introduce the idea of the Trinity in a way that will, I hope, at least make some sense to both critics and detractors. However, in the end, I believe it is a doctrine that is only likely to make sense through the eyes of faith. Some detractors of the Trinity like to point out that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the New Testament and then jump to the conclusion that the Trinity is a construct imposed onto the biblical text. Well, to me this is just really horrendous logic. 
There are many things that the biblical text does not state explicitly, but this is not to say that the actual idea isn't there. If you read St. Augustine's De Trinitate, for instance, you'll find him quoting several scriptures that obviously and unequivocally suggest the idea of the Trinity. The word Trinity is a descriptor of what is there in the biblical revelation. It's good to emphasize that Christians in the mold of the earliest church fathers hold that God is one. There is one God, not three. What transcends the material realm of being is not a weird collective of deities, but a single transcendent existence, simple and perfect in its self-subsistence and self-sustainment. Whatever steps we take towards contemplating the Trinity, this is the best place to start, with God's absolute unity. Even some of the Church Fathers made the mistake of starting with the three persons of the Trinity, and so they tended to set up their logic to support a kind of three-God collective, even if they believed wholeheartedly in the oneness of God. We'll start with what they believed even if their logic betrayed them in some respects, namely that God is one. After committing to this foundation, we can move on to the claim that this one God exists as three persons or hypostases, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a three-personal oneness. The three are distinct in their relations with each other, but they have exactly the same substance, essence, or nature, which is to say they are identical in all else except in their personhood. Technically speaking, the three persons are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial, meaning they share the same substance. This inevitably means that creation is the work of the one God, the Trinity, not the work of just, say, one of the members of the Trinity. I know there's a lot of speculation around generation and procession, with the Son being generated and the Spirit proceeding from the Father, but I'm not, to be honest, always convinced that this language clears anything up very much. So forgive me for getting a little technical for the moment. Where some people go wrong is to assume that the Father, by generating or begetting the Son, somehow causes the Son. Some also assume that the Spirit proceeding from the Father and or the Son is somehow caused by God the Father and God the Son. The trouble with this is that it leads to something called subordinationism, which compromises the co-equality, co-eternality and consubstantiality of the Trinity. Instead of saying that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are equal, it suggests a kind of hierarchy within the Trinity, which should really strike all of us as nonsense, at least if we are talking about the so-called imminent Trinity, that is, the life of the Trinity within itself. In simple terms, in the life of the Trinity, the ideas of generation and procession can't mean that something temporal is happening within God, that the Father first begets the Son and then that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, the classical filioque doctrine in Catholicism, or from the Father alone. I am skeptical about whether debates on this amount to anything more than logic games that attempt to solve a mystery that cannot be solved. Logic itself requires time, i.e. temporality, to unpack and unweave, and yet what is going on within the life of the Trinity is certainly hyperlogical in a sense. It transcends the temporality of logic itself. So, 
to restate the doctrine, Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. However, I do think there is a kind of hierarchy in how we talk about the Trinity, and this reflects our hierarchy of revelation. That's got to do with what is called the economic Trinity, that is, the life of the Trinity as related to creation. So, just in case you missed it, there is a distinction to be made between God is in himself, that is, the imminent Trinity, and God as we relate to him, that is, the economic Trinity. The history we find in the scriptures is, at least in one sense, a history of how God discloses himself. God discloses himself first as God, as one, then, when the Spirit descends on Mary, the incarnation is initiated, and so the person of the Father is disclosed by the Son and the Spirit. In the life of the Trinity, each person is completely and beautifully transparent to the others, and so each one discloses the others. We have a very diminished experience of this kind of disclosure when someone who knows us intimately helps to communicate who we are to others who do not know us very well. Each person of the Trinity also defers to the others, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Son, the Spirit to the Father, and so on. A kind of inner resonance drives this ever-moving rest that is God, perfect stillness and sheer momentum, and however much they move, they are completely still. Bear with me though, things will get a little bit more complicated before they get clearer. The core question in Trinitarian theology is the question of relations. How do the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other? Well, it was St. Augustine who took Scripture seriously and posited for the first time that the best way to understand the Trinity is as love. God, as we read in 1 John 4, is love. God is not self-love, but the perfect movement of self-giving love. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the communication of love between them is the Holy Spirit. God is the lover, the beloved, and love itself. When Christians claim that God is love, they are not merely saying that God loves, but that God, the highest and most transcendent reality, within himself as this endless dance of lover, beloved, and loving communication is quite literally love. God is an entanglement of oneness, self-giving, endlessly dancing within himself and around himself, repeating love from before the foundations of the world. As the ground of reality itself, love is not merely an emotion or an abstraction, but is that which is more real than anything within the created order. In fact, the created order is that which bears witness to this love, because it is sustained by this love. God repeats himself within himself, not as mere mindless repetition, but as the perfect reflection of one personality within another. God is, paradoxically, a differentiated unity. This, by the way, has profound implications for knowledge itself. Our knowing is an analogy for what is going on within God. For anything to be credible, a kind of non-identical repetition needs to be present, where the mind repeats internally 
what it knows externally, where it takes within itself what is beyond itself, and then produces words and actions that mirror this non-identical repetition. And even our thought structures, and even the structures of the physical brain with its hemispheric differences, mirror this non-identical repetition. I find that amazing. To know anything, it must be loved first. Love is the profoundest and truest connection with the goodness of being itself and with the goodness of the Creator. So this is where Christianity differs rather dramatically from other monotheistic faiths. Judaism and Islam might suggest that God loves, but the claim that God is love, that love should be given an ontological primacy, is uniquely part of the Christian heritage. Love is not something therefore added to or in excess of being, but is the created order's primary foundation. It is its impetus and purpose. I've already suggested that God is a dance. Well, the Greekish notion of perichoresis, or the Latinish equivalent, circumincession, are elegant and rather suggestive of this idea. God's being is a dance. Perichoresis comes from the Greek peri, meaning around, and chorea, meaning dancing in unison. Incidentally, the word chorea is also related to the Greek chorus, from where we get our English word chorus. Also, chorea gives us our word choreography. Perichoresis suggests containing, making room for, and going forward. The idea being that God is self-contained as the immanent trinity, yet the persons of the trinity are always fully allowing and making room for the others, and in the process going forward, exuding this love to such an extent that it spills over into creative action and into all of creation itself. If this is true, then we will see this truth everywhere that the goodness of created being is affirmed. And well, this is precisely what we do see. When we notice a plain fact, for example, that the life of any individual human being is lived from a particular source towards an end or aim and through the being of others, we find a hint that the structure of human life naturally mimics something deeply Trinitarian. I quoted St. Paul in the previous episode who writes, For from him and through him and for him are all things. This offers us a lovely clue into Trinitarian ontology. From God the Father, through or in God the Spirit, and for God the Son. Whatever the meaning of life is, and whatever meaning we would find in life, is something that follows this precise structure. From, through, for. When Aristotle tried to articulate how best to understand the meaning of anything, he articulated this through his so-called four causes. Well, putting the material cause aside, since it suggests the stuff of being and not the purpose of it, what he discovered was this pattern. From the efficient cause, through, that's the formal cause, and for, that's the final cause. Even when Nietzsche tried in an aphorism to articulate his own search for meaning, he found the same structure. So to quote Nietzsche, My formula for happiness, a yes, a no, a straight line, and a goal. Even Nietzsche, who is arguably one of the most antagonistic opponents of Christianity, could not escape this Trinitarian structure. 
It doesn't matter which theory of meaning you look at, you will find this pattern in it. It is in the structure of all stories, or at least in all relatable stories. From, through, and for. For from him, and through him, and for him are all things. There is another idea for understanding the Trinity, even hinted at by Nietzsche's no, in that little aphorism. The Trinity is a divine dance, yes, but it is also a permanent act of kenosis, that is, self-emptying. There is a famous passage in the scriptures in the second chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, where he records what scholars agree is a hymn that would have been sung or spoken by the earliest Christians. There we read the following words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I find this passage unbelievably beautiful, and it demands much more commentary than I will give, but here is something of a description of how Christ reveals something that is present within God, an endless self-giving or self-emptying. Christ empties himself, that is the word kenosis, and becomes a servant, being obedient even to death on the Roman equivalent of an electric chair. Then we have God raising him up. In Christ's self-emptying, the Father raises him up. The Father gives of himself to raise the Son up. And by implication, this is not a new thing. This didn't happen for the first time in the Incarnation. Rather, the Incarnation revealed what was always going on, an endless release of self and taking up of the other and giving of self and being given self by the other. So, perichoresis and kenosis go together. This passage in Philippians 2, by the way, is the first in human history to suggest the virtue of humility as we have come to understand it in our era. There was a kind of humility in the ancient world, of course, but it was the idea that one might call realistic humility, which is basically taking seriously one's actual station in life. If you were a servant, you should act accordingly and not assume yourself to be greater than your owner or a nobleman. But here in St. Paul's letter, we have an example of someone great stooping to serve. Humility of this sort was not a virtue in the ancient world, but it became recognized as a virtue and remains recognized as a virtue because of this revelation. Even the most secularized societies have taken this humility up as, well, gospel. 
The Trinitarian Godhead endlessly dancing within the oneness of himself, endlessly self-giving in his triune being, produces a surplus of love that gives and gives rise to creation. Where there is love, there is an excess of creativity. Where there is no love, people begin to tear things down carelessly and without any sense of self-giving. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 18, Jesus announces that, For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am with them. It's a reminder that finding and embracing the divine nature within the world requires relationships. The first thing in creation that God announces as not good in Genesis 2 verse 18 is that it is not good for man to be alone. Well, G.K. Chesterton takes this idea and notes that this speaks of a higher truth that it is not good for God to be alone. In God's providence, he's made a world of relationality where denying ourselves means regaining life itself, where taking up the cross means not death, but abundant life, where getting lost will mean getting found, although it may be a foundness that is different from what we had expected. In gratitude for the goodness of being, we might also notice that beings are dependent on other beings, like the organs in our bodies are dependent on other organs. Again, I think this is essential to understanding God's providence. First, we need to have a deep sense of God's goodness and of the goodness of being. Second, we need to have a deep sense of God's being as love and of the fact that love is what is most ultimately and most intimately real. And I hope this is something that all of us can become more aware of. May we know that this is one of the provisions made by God, that we will know that the deepest of all realities is love itself and that this love has been made known to us. For from him and through him and for him are all things. Thank you.